Hi, this is Carol Geisander. I'm a Stoker-nominated author. My latest novella is Forget Me Not, a cryptid novella about the monster in Lake Erie. I'm also the editor, co-editor of the upcoming charity anthology, A Woman Unbecoming, which will benefit reproductive health care rights from Crone Girls Press, which is coming in late September, early October. And you are listening to the HP Lovecast podcast. Hello, and welcome to episode 57 of the HP Lovecast podcast. I am Michelle Brittany, editor of James Bond in Popular Culture and the Bram Stoker-nominated Horror in Space. I write on all things pop culture with special emphasis on horror, fantasy, and spy genres. And I'm Nicholas Dyack, a pop culture scholar of Peplum Films, industrial music, horror studies, and the editor of The New Peplum from McFarland. Michelle and I also co-edited Horror Literature from Gothic to Postmodern, also from McFarland. This month marks HP Lovecast's third anniversary since we rebooted this podcast back in April 2020. In honor of this milestone, we are finally discussing the 1970 film The Dunwich Horror, directed by Daniel Holler and sorry, Dean Stockwell and Sandra Dee. We chose the story because it got a re-release from Arrow Video earlier this year, but also because we discussed the literary source some years ago. That's right, Michelle. Back in our original incarnation of uh, HP Lovecast, uh, we discussed uh, the Dunwich Horror story proper in episode 19, but also a kind of spin-off side story, The Black Brat of Dunwich, in episode 18. Oh, I forgot about that one. Yeah, I remember it being kind of... I think it was from... uh, Wilbur Waitley's uh, perspective. It's been a while. I think it's uh, probably time for us to revisit. Uh, not on the podcast, of course. We'll just re-listen to that. But <laughs> but those are all back on archive.org. Just head there, you know, search for HP Lovecast, and all of our uh, original episodes with the old crew are there. But yeah, Arrow Video, they did a, a re-release this past January. Uh, we already had a copy of Dunwich Horror from MGM. They did like a midnight madness midnight movies released back in the 2000s that's when we originally saw it so we thought mm-hmm. hey it's a good time to you know revisit the movie that we haven't seen in so long see if it holds up see if it's cool and also use it as nice fodder for our podcast so uh, uh quick question on that mm-hmm. with the re-release uh what did they do did they remaster the print or well, it's, it's Blu-ray. Okay, so yeah. So, so the original release we have, we actually, <laughs> Michelle will put it in the picture for the thumbnail, but our release was actually a Blockbuster copy. Uh, <laughs> was it a Blockbuster? Yes. <laughs> oh, man. So it has it's still Blockbuster case and a block, peeled off Blockbuster sticker, but the original DVD, I think, just had like trivia on the back. And, you know, this was like the early days of DVDs where special features were like, 
widescreen, scene selection, trailer. Um, oh, yeah, I remember those days. <laughs> but, yeah, the new version, it's from uh, Arrow. It's in a nice digipack. It's got really awesome artwork. The uh, artwork is great on the cover. Uh, side note, we, we aren't, like, being sponsored by uh, Arrow Video, but, if, but you, if, if you want to. Arrow wanted to sponsor an episode, <laughs> we're not opposed. Yeah. But no, it's got one of those, you know, 4K transfers, new commentaries and, and supplements. Now, we actually listened to the commentary track and thought it was, eh? I, I, it was more stream of consciousness <laughs> rather than being a very kind of focused conversation related to what was happening on the screen. So it kind of meandered. And I mean, that would have been okay, except we were actually looking for some insight. So it didn't fulfill yeah. what we were looking to have it fulfill. I didn't feel like we as an audience were included in the commentary. It was just like we were eavesdropping on two people. There is one thing I took away from the commentary was it never dawned on me that you could say Dunwich Har or Dunwich Har. And yeah, I didn't know there, there was a controversy <laughs> about how to how to say that. And then we watched some of the supplements and everything, but... The, the print looks good. It was nice watching it on our uh, TV, especially for a psychedelic, vibrant color film as this. It it really pops. So, uh, yeah, definitely, if you've got no copy of Dunwich Horror or the old <laughs> MGM DVD, uh, always a good chance to upgrade, especially since Aero Video does some cool stuff. Yeah, they really do. Um, yeah, can't recommend them enough. Again, we're interested in sponsorship. <laughs> If I recall, side note, uh, uh, we were on the Fan to Fan podcast recently, and we revisited Chud, and I believe the version we watched, because our version of Chud, the old Anchor Bay copy, was still in storage in a box somewhere. At that time, yeah. At the time. So we used an Arrow video copy. So if you ever need a, a cult video, <laughs> there you go. Them or Vinegar Syndrome or whoever. All right, so let's talk about Dunwich Horror starring Dean Stockwell proper plot. Sandra D is a student at Miskatonic, and her professor is Dr. Armitage. He has a copy of the Necronomicon. Wilbur Waitley also wants this copy, and he uses his charms and magical abilities to seduce Sandra D to show it to him. He also sees something in her, a key to a ritual to resurrect the old ones. So he continues to use his abilities to charm Sandra D back to his house in Dunwich. Here he drugs her. They talk about sex, and then he does some unwanted sexy time on her at an altar overlooking the ocean? Meanwhile, Dr. Armitage and Sandra D's friend wonder, where is she? They track her back to Dunwich, to Wilbur's place. They do some digging into his past. Sandra D's friend opens a door in Wilbur's house and is disrobed and mauled by Wilbur's invisible twin brother. <laughs> uh, his invisible twin brother is a whole bunch of sneaky tentacles that bust through the door and go blah 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 blah. Wilbur breaks into the Miskatonic library and steals the Necronomicon after getting into a very unimpressive fight with a guard. It was very quiet. It, it was, was a quiet fight. <laughs> it was a very... <laughs> so I know, I was looking at reviews for this, and people are actually praising the fight sequence. I'm like, this is the most boring fight sequence between two people who don't know how to fight. <laughs> um... Wilder's, Wilbur's brother attacks the countryside, killing people and knocking buildings over. The townsfolk will have none of this, and they gather their shotguns. They are kind of pick off, picked off by Wilbur's brother. Armitage confronts Wilbur at the altar as he's performing a spell with Sandra D as his sacrifice. Armitage casts his own spell, and an old one is summoned and kills Wilbur. 
Armitage wakes up Sandra D, who is now carrying Wilbur's baby. Wilbur's invisible brother presumably still haunts the countryside. Mm-hmm. So that's right. We we were talking about that offline <laughs> about the fact that uh, the brothers kind of unresolved and just I guess that well potential the, sequel. I I think original story they do the incantation to get rid of Wilbur's brother because Wilbur himself dies in the library after being mauled by a dog. This one has a has well you know it's got a loose end and. Uh, you know, a baby inside Sandra T. So it's got like double opportunity for sequel bait. Which is <laughs> not quite what they were doing at that time because this film came out in 1970. Uh, so overall, general thoughts on the film. Like it? Love it? Amazing? You know, I think the first time that I watched it was before we watched it together long ago. And I thought it was kind of slow and, and <laughs> I didn't really understand what the hell is this thing that I'm watching? But, um, you know, I enjoyed it a bit more on the second because uh, by that time I think we'd, we'd read the story or I at least knew more about Lovecraft by uh-huh. that time. And then uh, this time, I uh, definitely enjoyed it. Got a lot more of the nuances out of it and it was uh, a real nice print. Uh, so I just thought it was, you know, uh, probably one of the better adaptations of a Lovecraft story uh, out there. And I mean, for being, you know, let's see, 50, 53 years old, it really does hold up. It is. Old. That's right. We're celebrating our third year anniversary. This movie celebrating its 53. 53rd. So you only turned 53 once. <laughs> That's, that is true. I, I don't remember the first time I watched it. I know it was with you back in the 2000s. And, you know, we were really watching a lot of cult cinema back then, so it kind of blurs in there. I think I just took it in as another Corman film of the era, because we were watching a lot of the Vincent Price, Edgar Allan Poe films at the time. I think this kind of all bled together. So, But since then, we've become Lovecraft scholars and podcasters, and, you know, definitely know the know a lot more about cosmic horror since then. So, you know, re-watching it fairly recently for this podcast, um, I like it. I, I do. I think it's... Uh, one of, like I said, one of the better Lovecraft adaptations out there. And I say adaptations in quotes because other than I think it's the H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society, the ones that do like the silent film type versions of like... That, that really try to be kind of a true yeah, adaptation one-to-one. of one story. Yeah, yeah most Lovecraft adaptations outside that are not one for one. And I I, I know there's some purists out there. It's like, you can't hear that. Whatever. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm actually okay not to do it a one-to-one because... I'm sorry, there, there's some Lovecraft stuff out there that's just boggy. I remember when we read Charles Dexter Ward and it's like the first 80% of that book is just walking around the town or something. Like, I don't need that in a movie. But anyway, um, the, the, what's the highlight of this film, and we'll probably talk about him in a bit more detail, of course, is Dean Stockwell. He's very, he commands the film, I think. Even though he's, uh, uh, he's not a dominating person, he's actually very subdued and relaxed and calm and composed. He's hypnotic, and that's kind of the key to this film is it has a very dreamlike quality throughout, and he kind of, even though he's the bad guy, he's, you know, he's our POV through the majority of the story, and, and I, you know, I, I dig it. I know back in the day, Dean Stockwell was into the, you know, uh, hippie-type stuff, the Easy Rider-type things that kind of, 
you know, lifestyle or whatnot. So I think he's kind of perfect as this uh, psychedelic occultist. And so I think he he carries the film because uh, there, there's some laughable stuff in the film, as is typical of an AIP film at the period. But I dig it. It's probably not as good as Reanimator, but definitely like up there next to Reanimator as adaptations go. Yeah, I would agree with his performance. Uh, he was very hypnotic, and again, I, I would echo the fact that he does kind of have a, a subtle and subdued performance, but what he puts into it, I mean, he's definitely seemed very serious about <laughs> his portrayal of Wilbur, um, and I do recall from the story that Wilbur is not attractive, no. and I'm just going to... Dean Stockwell was attractive in this, and <laughs> Dean Stockwell was still attractive in Quantum Leap, you know, twenty eight years well, later. <laughs> a charming individual. I mean, he just kind of exuded that charm. Um, he was definitely sensual in this as well. Um, just some of his moves and the POV of the camera, particularly when um, he is performing the ritual. Um, after his uh, dad passes away, well, he falls down the stairs. So That's after a, after his death, it, he does. It's not his dad. I think it's his uncle because his dad is the unknown entity that impregnates oh, his okay. mom. But still, it's like his uncle or okay. whatever. But you're right. You're right. After yeah. he passes away and he's doing the yeah, rituals. Yeah, and he's doing the ritual. Mm -hmm. You know the way he you know does the mixing of the various powders and the way he twirls the knife as he goes to each corner to do, you know, complete the ritual. Um, and then the POV of him, it's a low angle shot up at him. So he seems really tall and just kind of, uh, you know, I wouldn't say otherworldly. He just seems like an awesome entity that's standing above you. And there, he just commands attention. Um, even though it's a very, it, there's a subtlety about his performance that I, I just, I really liked it. I thought that, you know, uh, I think in the um, uh, commentary they mentioned that Peter Fonda was originally up for the role. And I, I just can't see Peter Fonda in this role. I, I know, I mean, it would have been a decade earlier, but, you know, Vincent Price doing all the Poe films, you know, would po, would Vincent Price work in a role like this? And I wouldn't even say no for that because Vincent Price does have a very over-the-top bombastic, he's selling the, you know, macabre, you know, you kind of mm -hmm. need that for the, the Poe stuff. This movie, especially... Uh, it tonal wise is different than a lot of other Lovecraft. I mean, it, it's slow like a lot of Lovecraft is, but tonally it's way different than a lot of other Lovecraft. And I, I do think you're right. Dean Stockwell helps says that he's commanding without being commanding. He's not a big muscular guy. He's not the Henry, Henry Fonda. He's not a Jack Nicholson or anything like that, which makes this weird because he is the bad guy. I mean, it's like you can watch the movie like Heat. And, you know, the POV is mostly on, you know, the bad guys robbing banks and stuff like that. But you kind of still root for him. But Wilbur, he's he's kind of nasty. He wants to summon the old gods to basically, in a Lovecraftian way, take over the world. And, again, this is the 70s. Even though we're getting more risque and how we're showing mainstream stuff... Um, he, he still he still rapes Sandra D, which is, is bad. Even though 
it's not like they show it like the movie Irreversible or anything. It's a lot of cutaways and cuddling and moaning and filter over the camera. But, you know, aside from all that obfuscation, he still rapes her and gets her pregnant. And he's evil, but but he's still he's sympathetic. I mean, his character, yeah, loses his uncle. And he does have kind of a, I don't want to say pitiful quality about him, but it, you, you empathize with him. And... Not what he's trying to do, like on a big scale, but like on a small scale, you kind of do. I mean, uh, you, you root he, he, for he, him he, in the bad library fight because he's the hero in that sequence. So it's really weird that as an audience, we are drawn into an otherwise despicable character that we empathize with. Yeah, and he, he represents, you know, the loner, the <laughs> outcast, and, you know traditionally we kind of root for that person mm -hmm. because they're they're going against the stream and in this case he's going against christianity he's going against the establishment um you know because he's trying to summon an old one what's interesting with his relationship with sandra d as well is that you know he selects her you know because she represents innocence she's a virtual uh, character, um, and she gets kind of sucked into that. I mean, they have conversations about sex, which is kind of <laughs> a little you know, awkward. It, it, yeah, it's kind of like, oh wow, we're the fly on the wall. And, you know, can I fly to another room instead of listening to this? But you know, there, I don't know. It's it. A lot of it tonally is hypnotic. It's sensual. It's um, otherworldly. They they do a lot of yeah. camera tricks, like either Vaseline on the camera or like there's sequences where I think they put a cloth over the camera so it looks canvassy. It's yeah, kind of weird. So uh, yeah, there's definitely a soft focus, and then with the dream sequence with the nude people <laughs> running around, which seems very very kind of like coming out of the flower power, the '60s, the hippie movement, the free love. So there's a lot of influence from the '60s into this movie, you know, which was right at you know 1970. Um, I would also say that there's a very mystical and spiritual um, tones to this to this story as well, or well, to the film. Well, if, if I can. <laughs> pimp a work of mine. <laughs> um, I recently did an essay for Kevin Wetmore's book on the Twilight Zone where I talked about the movie Encounter of the Unknown, which was capitalizing like on the interests of the occult in the period, and that was late 60s, early 70s, and it definitely was out there. I mean, AIP at the time was producing psychedelic films, mm -hmm. uh, 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 The Trip and Psych Out, um, but also... You know, we saw occult stuff in mainstream cinema. There was a, a heavy handing of Rosemary's Baby in this film, for instance. There's uh, quite a bit of, I would say, that in there. I, I do want to go back to, to Sandra D for a sec, because I'm mm -hmm. not so familiar with her. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think the first time I really heard of Sandra D was in the uh, Kevin Spacey <laughs> movie Beyond the Sea, I think it was, because that was the Bobby Darren movie. Um, but I think her career was like she was played... She was always, like, cast, like, as a sweet... She was Gidget, right? I think that was her claim to fame. I don't remember if she was Gidget. I just, uh... Actually, I'm looking real quick. Yeah, <laughs> she was, uh, Gidget from 59. Um, yeah, she always had this persona of the innocent girl, and I, I think I read somewhere that, like, she would be out, 
she couldn't even be shown smoking. Mm-hmm. So, like, somebody else would have the cigarette and she'd, you know, <laughs> like a quick puff or whatever. But it was always as a way of, like, you know, she had this persona that she was this virtual person. Um, even though, you know, a lot of things were going on, I think she'd actually been sexually um, molested by her stepdad when she was young. And, you know, so um, she's bringing that old kind of persona well, I'm guessing the audience movie. of the film they're going to say wait a second I remember yeah. Sandra D from these old style movies what was she doing in this yeah um yeah so so I'm guessing that's the quality that she brought in because she's her character reminded me a lot of Barbara from Night of the Living Dead which mm-hmm. Night of the Living Dead's no it's not a dreamy film not by a long shot but Barbara's character in that film is kind of catatonic throughout the film while everyone else is like hustling and bustling, boarding up windows, fighting out zombies. She does kind of sit there on the couch just like in a daze because she can't comprehend what's going on. And I, I get that. I mean, if a zombie apocalypse is going on, what would I do? I'd probably be scared crapless. And Sandra D's character kind of reminds me of her character. And I think Nylum Dead came out, I think, two years before this, three years, maybe, very late 60s. But, you know, her character is also... She's not comatose, but she's very passive and inactive through the film. It's Dean Stockwell that has his command over her. So she's very uh, under his spell. So she doesn't have a lot of agency like Barbara's character does. Yeah, and I think that stems directly from the fact that from the first night when she drives him home after... Uh, Dr. Armitage's uh, lecture, and then they they all go out to dinner. She actually takes him home because he missed his bus on uh, purpose. We know, yeah, it, which was kind of a nice nod because you know Lovecraft always wrote about people riding buses, so it was like, oh, okay, that's cool. Riding buses and eating crackers. <laughs> yeah, but you know, uh, from that first night when she has a cup of tea, mm-hmm. um, you know, he's drugging her. Yeah. So it's not surprising that she would be, uh, kind of passive, somewhat incoherent, mm-hmm. like not in charge of her, like you said, of her own agency, mm-hmm. and also unresponsive. Like when the father uh, fell down the stairs, she's there, she kind of looks, she is somewhat like taking it in, but when uh, in the next scene, uh, Wilbur is uh, doing his ritual over his dad or his uncle, um, she's just standing there and she's just, kind of like looking but not doing anything and not really responding to anything and to to compound that that's got to be awkward you're on this (laughs) sexcation weekend with dean stockwell and his his uncle dies and he's burying him the next day i mean to be fair drugged or not drugged you're like what the hell i don't know this guy why am i here i'm not even dressed for the occasion i mean awkward and then the townspeople show up with pitchforks i mean i do get a little bit of that. That just makes it a little bit more sillier. I would also say that this this movie, um, because I, I kind of wrote down uh, descriptors. Mm-hmm. That's kind of what I sensed from the film. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would have to say dreamy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because I think we when we were watching the film, I think I commented that it it seems like time loses its influence. Um, like 
time seems to distort and because we were thinking like wow this was supposed to be like over a weekend and it seems like it's so much longer right than a weekend it it does and especially compounded with like she doesn't they don't really change their clothes and you know again the uncle dies he's buried i mean this is a lot of stuff that happens in the span of a weekend i mean there's other films out there that are weekend movies like two days in the valley but you do feel like a specific amount of time has elapsed yeah this one is in a way otherworldly that it does exist a little outside our reality outside mm-hmm. of space and time very twilight zoney i would suppose and i would agree with that and again i think it's you know when dean St- it's kind of a i want to say fourth wall breaking that you know dean stockwell is not just you know using his magic powers and hypnosis on sandra d by extension, he's using it on us as well. We're, mm-hmm. as the audience, are falling under a spell, hence why we kind of sympathize with him, but are also on this kind of dreamlike uh, dream quest, <laughs> I guess, <laughs> with him. I actually, I do want to point out that, you know, going back a little bit to Dean Stockwell as kind of a hero, anti-hero. He's not here. He's a bad guy, but it's from his point of view. I was kind of thinking of, like, where else would you put the point of view at? You couldn't put it on Sandra Dee's character because she's impassive through the entire film. She doesn't have any agency. So the other character would have to be Dr. Armitage, which they do cut to him as he's trying to stop everything. But it's only a little bit. And I'm thinking, you know what? If you did make the entire movie from his point of view and Dean Stockwell as more of the uh, you know ultimate bad guy because... You know, since it's not uh, focused on him, he's a little bit more eviler. We don't get to empathize with him. It made me think it would be like a lot, a lot like another movie. And if you remember um, the Roman Polanski movie Ninth Gate, it's very similar to that, where Johnny Depp is trying to collect stuff from the uh, books and stuff, and you know, the end goal of the bad guys is to open a portal to hell or something. Um, and it's like, well, you know, if they just tweak the POV to this, this would have basically been <laughs> Ninth Gate. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, if you'd gone with the perspective of Frank Langella, uh-huh. we would have had more of a sympathetic uh, view of him than we do in the film. Because Ninth Gate, that is. Yeah, in Ninth Gate, yeah. That's right, Frank Langella, he's the bad guy in that. And he's also Dracula, your favorite Dracula, if I recall. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'd say there's also a lot of attention to detail in this film. Again, late 60s, early 70s, he had the the drug culture, the psychedelic culture, and the occult culture all, you know, uh, congregating. I know we read one of James Chambers' short stories in Engines of Sacrifice. That's also in a previous episode, folks, where one of them, oh man, it's been a while, is kind of a riff on Dreams of the Witch House, but it takes place in that... I think Green, Greenwich, Greenwich Village, whatever that area in New York that was like a lot of, you know, folk singers getting into occult stuff. I mean, this movie uh, is very much like that. And, you know, the attention to details like uh, uh, normal folks will just probably say it's like, oh, that's this kind of crazy ritual stuff. But like when Dean Stockwell puts his hands on the side of his face and is doing the chanting, I mean, that's an Aleister Crowley thing right there. So people in the audience who actually know occult stuff be like, oh, yeah, he's doing Crowley things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I also want to point out, I, I'm pretty sure other movie aficionados or scholars or something had to have pointed this out, so I can't be the only one, but the when Wilbur's brother breaks out of the closet and is roaming around the countryside, you see it from his point of view, and it's, again, very psychedelic. It changes colors. It goes, psh, psh, psh. There's also, like, 
actually some really cool shots of like the wind blowing across like the grass and the water and it looks really neat but all that pov of an invincible monster i'm sorry that is straight up evil dead that is the uh, evil force or whatever you call it in evil dead where it's basically the raimi cam where the invisible force is running or flying or whatever through the forest and you know it you know gets people and whatever i i know that evil dead was based a lot on equinox which was a criterion oh, yes we, and we've uh, we watched that quite oh, some time ago. Long ago. I, think, I think when it was re-released on Criterion, that, that deserves a revisit, I think, for the podcast, because I remember really liking Equinox. But I have to think the Raimi cam slash Evil Force in the Evil Dead films has to draw a little bit from this Dunwich horror, because, I mean, it's a Lovecraft story, Necronomicon, all that stuff's in Evil Dead, but the point of view, Evil Force, Invisible Brother, I have to think they're either inspired by or one in the same in a weird sort of way, which would make the stuff even more headcanon together. <laughs> but they're cool shots, though. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're cool shots. Um, yeah, and I thought that was, like, some of the best stuff to indicate this cosmic horror that, that has come out of the this room in the attic um, and, you know, wreaking havoc across the neighborhood. Um <laughs> Yeah, the, the movie at the end does dive into the typical vil- scared villagers with pitchforks slash shotguns. I, I do remember there was one scene, I think we busted up laughing, like one of the mean antagonistic villagers is like, everyone go on without me, my my gun is stuck. And he like takes his gun, like he pounds it or something like that is the most unsafe gun handling in the world. So of course yeah. he gets monster chomp, but you know, you, you can't help but like double laugh at you know, again, he's a scared villager, so he's technically a good guy because Wilbur's a bad guy, but he's also a jerk. <laughs> so it's weird. Yeah, you know, it's one of those movies that, you know, like horror conventions, the the people that get eaten still get eaten or killed, but it's for slightly <laughs> different reasons than, you know, you what you're normally used to. But um, I, I think the last thing I probably need to bring up is the ending. The che- This is probably the death... It's the downside of the film, and I, I understand why they end it this way, and I can justify it, but, you know, the ending shot is super cheesy. The, our Dr. Armitage helps Sandra D off the altar, and it freeze frames and zooms in on her belly, or her belly zooms out, whatever, and there's a baby in it. And, you know, that's the Rosemary's Baby, Child of Satan type shot. I get it, but I'm like, what? Well, you don't get pregnant that quick but again like you were saying earlier time kind of loses its meaning in this film so i get that but also the book or uh, the original short story i mean wilbur himself has like super rapid growth i mean they spend time talking about like he's walking by like three months old he's like a full-fledged adult like at five years old and the events in the original short story he's like 15 years old even though he looks like a a goat alligator human. <laughs> He's not, again, not Dean Stockwell attractive. So I, I can kind of see, like, maybe if they brought that super growing up aspect of the short story into the movie at the end, that Dean Stockwell is able to get someone pregnant that quick and the baby's going <laughs> to evolve that quick and, you know, such energy. I get it, but as a cinema person... Uh, I'm like, oh, it's so hammy. But, again, it's sequel bait. That, of course, never happens. Uh, you know, there will be a Dean Stockwell 2 that will try where his father left off. Mm-hmm. But it's so cheesy. <laughs> yeah, 
Um, I did did find this superimposed uh, embryo on her yes on her stomach area at the very end as she's being um, helped away uh, from the altar by Armitage was I think they should have left it a bit more, you know, just him helping her off and just leave it uh, for you to wonder. Um, just like we wonder about Wilbur's brother, where he might be. I think they could have left that open as a question because, yes, we know that that um, you know Wilbur takes advantage of her. He's he's drugged her. He has sex with her on the altar. Well, I'm not going to say it's sex. He's raped her on the altar. It was not consensual. Um, and it you know it's definitely possible that. She'd get pregnant that fast. So, um... There's a less cheesy way to pull it off um, at the end. Probably. I think they could have just left it without (laughs) the superimposed. Um, but again, you know, that's... I think part of it is that you have to decide what you're going to use from the original story. And I, I think the way that they have the story stitched together in the film works but i think if you if you try to bring in some of the other elements like the fast growth of wilbur yeah it's been done in other films but the focus really of this film is is a bit different so Mm -hmm. i think that that had to to stay off um you know how they could have done it they they did it with the front credits they had the cool graphics over the les baxter film where they kind of show the movie up to that point, like, uh, uh, I don't know how to explain it. You have to watch the credit sequence. It's like the, blue the and black. Se- it's yeah. very cartoony, but it shows like a baby being born in an altar, an evil God popping up and everything. It's basically doing a, a condensed version of the story between, um, you know, right before Wilbur gets born. So it acts as, you know, the title sequence is part of the narrative. They could have probably done an, end title sequence that you know cuts back to the same style and kind of repeats in a weird sort of way of now Sandra you know Sandra G in silhouette or whatnot Mm -hmm. blah 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 gives birth or something then then it wouldn't be as cheesy and it would probably have bookended the movie really well Mm -hmm. yeah I definitely a missed opportunity the the opening credits yeah we didn't talk about that but that those were were pretty impressive and I, I think kind of ahead of their time I, I know, like, you know, the Hitchcock... Who's who's the guy that did all the stuff for Hitchcock's stuff? Like, North by Northwest of, like, the cool graphics and everything? Oh, I don't remember the guy that did that. I just remember the guy that did the the music. Les ba- I, I, I do have to say, it was nice that the commentary did shout out Les Baxter and his contribution to Exotica music, because as a fellow Tiki aficionado... Well done. You get props there. <laughs> uh, I cannot remember the guy's... I know he's a prominent guy who did title credits way back in the day, but I think this was like AIP's, you know, attempt to get that, you know, high level mm-hmm. of of uh, te- technical, artistic, big budgetness on a smaller budget, but but it works. Uh, and, and if I may, uh, I, I kind of think Reanimator, you know, 20-some-odd years later, borrows a little bit of it. Uh, Reanimator's... Uh, beginning credits are all like medical journals but they're all like very colorful like it'll be like a green skull then followed by a blue skull then a a red lung or something like that and they kind of float around and this kind of takes me back to the Dunwich Horror that was all blue on black but very you know stark you know mono color on black and very 
all sh- silhouette. Yeah. Yeah. It's actually very well done. Music's good. <laughs> um, it's a good film. Yeah. I really like uh, the symbiology that they that they pulled in. Um, like, you know, and, and we get access to it over time. So, like, first we see Wilbur with his rings. Mm-hmm. Then we see uh, old, uh, old Waitley mm-hmm. with oh. his staff. And then eventually they do, you know, and everything's kind of kept tight, mm-hmm. tight framed. And then um, after, I think, Old Waitley falls down the stairs, that's when we see the full room. And we the see mosaic that, on the floor. Yeah, and we actually see the mosaic on the, on the floor. And I thought that was a nice reveal. Like, um, you know, it's just not giving you everything at once. And it, it, it kind of brings you in. And again, kind of that dreamy state where you start making connections. But it's it's slow because mm-hmm. you're you're under that spell. Oh, and don't forget, like, the the green crystal things that Sandra D actually knocks over. And oh, Wilbur, yeah. like, taps with his ring. I'm like, I can't tell if they're just ornamental or are they actually magical or both. Because... Who, who knows? Again, the movie is that psychedelic and and otherworldly that it could go either way. It could just be he's really in a trippy art and he's like, I like that piece. Or it's actually part of his rituals or spells or it's uh, something. Um, you, you know, it, the, those pieces remind me of when I was really, really young and um, you'd see pieces in home decor that kind of come out of the 60, and they're kind of glass, and mm-hmm. they'd be like fruits and stuff, but they'd be oversized, <laughs> and, you know, you'd kind of just, like, look at them, and, you know, they wouldn't have any imperfections or anything like that. These two pieces were humongous <laughs> on the table, and they had kind of a divot, so they almost seemed to me like they were a geode that had been broken yeah. in half mm-hmm. or cut in half because they were, you know, it was a smooth cut. Um and then they had that little divot, like you should have seen crystals in there or mm-hmm. something, but there wasn't. And the color was off. That was the other thing that I was remembering about with watching the movie is how subtle the colors were as well. Except when you get to the psychedelic flashes of light um, or even with the um, the dream of the people dancing around and you get a little bit more color. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that it worked really well with the locale that they filmed this because this was uh, filmed in Mendocino County. Um, the like the outdoor shots and things like that. And um, so you get a lot of greens and blues, very natural. Um, things that you would think that would be kind of safe. But then you'd have these odd colors like those pieces, which were kind of a greenish yellow, <laughs> not really... Not attractive. So you, you I, do, I, no, I, I gotta I do stop. really wonder I gotta where stop those came from. In my dream tiki bar, I would totally have that piece in <laughs> it because it's that retro looking. Oh no! <laughs> I think I've only got really one more point to bring bring yeah. up. It's kind of off cuff, but I just kind of realized that this is probably the more, even though Sandra D gets raped and drugged and all that stuff, this is still out of a Lovecraft story. Uh, one that has a lot more women in it, or and, and women that actually do stuff. And I, I think mm-hmm. even the original story was kind of 
credit with, with Lavina Watley, which is Wilbur's mom, that, you know, hey, this Lovecraft story actually has a lady in it. Lovecraft didn't hate women. Yeah, he did. But but the movie itself, there's actually quite a few uh, women in it. Yeah. Um, you know, you got Lavina, even though she's in jail, so she doesn't really have agency. Sandra D, our heroine, who also doesn't have agency, but you've got her best friend who's actually trying to track her down and play detective. She's a lot like, um, uh, I, I, what's the guy's name? Psycho, you know, the detective trying to track down, um, the missing money and the girl's sister mm-hmm. in Psycho and he comes up, he gets slashed across the, the face. I mean, I, I, he has like a weird name and I can't remember. I mean, oh, uh, William H. Macy played him in the, the shot for shot remake, but, uh, uh that, that's, was it Eli Wallace? I don't remember. Okay. Um, but, uh, Arborgast, why does that name sound familiar? Anyway, but like she is the, the psycho detective, uh, who's trying to track down the sister and instead of getting knifed in the face, she gets, you know, uh, Yog Sothoth, blah, 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 blah. um, uh, but yeah, and there and then there's the the nurse who's a lot more you know like hey let me fill you on the scoop of everything that's going on on the site. Well, yep. thank you, expository nurse. So there's a lot more ladies. Uh, I would say uh, Even- slightly more progressive than you know uh, other. F- Films. Not by much, but definitely more progressive than a standard Lovecraft story. Even like Reanimator, Barbara Crampton is just there to get David Galed. <laughs> yeah. Um, there's also the farmer's wife. Who oh, yeah. Also, you know, they all have uh, parts to play. Mm-hmm. They, they all have dialogue, which to me is always, a you know, a big thing. Do they get some dialogue in there? And, and uh, all, all four of these women's women do so yeah uh that was one of my notes too is the fact that there there is uh women uh in the story which is noticeable mm-hmm. from from the original they're prominent definitely with sandra d because she's almost in every scene even though she's reactive instead of proactive mm-hmm. but you know we still root for her she still has dialogue she still does things she she want she can't save the day other people have to still save the day but we empathize with her we're we're with her on uh her her journey and want her out of this mess so so yeah back back to the beginning i i dug it rewatching it uh it's a pretty film especially for an aip film uh which can be sometimes a little low budget but when they go grandiose they really go grandiose and i think you know it shows especially like in Wilbur's house, especially the foyer, the crazy crystal furniture. Um, I, I, I dig the characters in it. I think all the actors definitely uh, pull everything off. Sandra Dee's perfect. Dean Stockwell's perfect. It's a, it's a great Lovecraft adaptation. And with that, I would say that that kind of wraps up our episode. We're going to take a short uh, musical intermission, and then we'll be back to uh, talk about thank yous and upcoming events. Welcome back. We would like to thank Carol Geisander for providing this episode's opening bumper. We had the pleasure of interviewing Carol for our transmissions program last July. 
She co-edited Even in the Grave with James Chambers and A Woman Unbecoming with Rachel A. Brune. We wish her much continued success. And for our Transmissions episode this month, we'll be interviewing Bernie Gonzalez, comic book creator of Midnight Mystery, and writer Joshua Pruitt, author of Max Brallier's The Last Comics on Earth, which is being released later this month, and also has a freebie coming out for Free Comic Book Day. Uh, the first Saturday of May, by the way. And uh, we are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Our website is hplovecast.com. And, of course, you can email us at hplovecast at gmail.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and feel free to explore our archives. Consider supporting us by purchasing our books. We each have Amazon author pages with links to all the books we have either edited or contributed to with individual essay chapters. Or, if you feel like donating a dollar or two, we have a coffee account. A link is provided in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening.